Welcome to Access this morning. I want to give you a special welcome if you're new and you've been able to navigate the, the maze that is COVID restrictions at the moment. We really, really appreciate you making the effort to connect with us and um, just hope you are blessed by being here with us this morning. If you're online and you've been unable to book a ticket this morning, it's because we're only allowed 50% capacity at the moment in our room. But we do have room on a Saturday night. We probably had our biggest Saturday night crowd last night, um, maybe forever, but certainly in a long, long time. So even as you think about next weekend, if you have any trouble with Sunday and you have some flexibility to come Saturday, I encourage you to come out Saturday, 6 p.m. And uh, we do have kids ministry running as well, so suitable for families as well. And just helps us, particularly in these two weeks, uh, this week and next week, while we're dealing with these restrictions, to be able to still get people in and 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 welcome you into the to the to the, the gathering here. I, I'm I'm hesitant to say just one more week of this, so because I've been saying now for a while, just one more week of masks, everyone, just one more week, and then we hear now it could be the rest of the year, and I'm like, oh Lord, Lord, help me stay positive, help me keep the main thing the main thing. So we've been saying over these last few weeks that when we understand we are blessed beyond all measure that we just sung about, it, it moves us, it shifts our posture from here where we're in self-protection mode to where our hands are more like here and we think of others and we're ready to share. We, we're, not, we're, not, we're not hoarding anymore, we're not in fear about what we have. And uh, really the big question we're wrestling with over these, these number of weeks is, what is in my hand and what could God do with it if I offered it to him, if I gave it over to his control? So the fruit of this series will look different to each of us because we're all in different seasons of life. And some of us have greater capacity for generosity right now than others, perhaps in terms of the numbers. But what I want you to think about is the heart. The heart and what is in my hand and how am, I, how am I using that for God? And even broader than that, what is in my mouth? How could I be generous with my affirmations towards others? How could I be generous in my time and the way I volunteer and the way I serve? And so this generosity thing is far beyond just money. It, it involves all areas of life. Now we're in week four of five. We have one more week in the series and I re recognise the last couple of weeks we've been online only and I saw a few of you fall asleep on the couch. So by way of review uh, of where we've been the last few weeks because being in your pyjamas and laying on the couch was just too hard, wasn't it? To stay tuned in. So uh, we're just going to do a quick flyover of where we've been these last few weeks. Week one, we looked at two good and two false motivations for giving. Does anyone remember anything about that? Two false motivations for giving and then two good motivations for giving. Any ideas? Anyone want to yell out a guess of where we were? Sorry? I heard somebody. Guilt. Guilt and manipulation is not a good motivation for giving. We looked at 2 Corinthians 9. We did a skim of that passage, which we're actually going to return to with a different focus next weekend. Um, so yes, we, we, looked at, we looked at that. And it's not a good motivation to give out of guilt and manipulation. The, 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 
the word there in the original Greek is where we get the word hilarious from. So giving is supposed to be a hilarious experience. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be life-giving. It's not a drag. Another false motivation for giving. Paying the church bills. That is not why we give. Because we said that even if a millionaire came in and said, I'm going to pay the entirety of the church budget for the coming year, that doesn't change anything for me about the way I give, because I give unto the Lord, not to meet a bill. Then we said two good motivations for giving was growing in trust and in response to a generous father. Growing in trust. Sometimes the most fruit in our lives in this generosity space is when you're out on a limb and you're kind of hearing some creaking and you're like, God, I need you to come through here because if you don't, I don't know how I'm going to survive this. And my experience is that's where the growth is. We also said in response to a generous father. It's this, it's this idea we're swimming around these last few weeks that if I understand that the God I worship is my dad and he's generous and I'm in that family, I'd bear resemblance, right? That generosity that the father has would be rubbing off on me and it would be seen in the way I live and the choices that I make if I'm in the family. Then in week two, we spoke about the principle of first fruits and I spoke about my love of dessert. And uh, in particular that uh, when Yvonne and I were first getting to know each other and she was attempted to have a bite of my ice cream, I said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not how this relationship is going to work. And I went on to say, to use the analogy, that God isn't just asking for a bite of our ice cream. He's asking for the first bite. But the amazing thing is when you, you enter into this principle of first fruits, you start honouring God with your finances. This is my experience again that I've found that the ice cream comes back bigger after he took his bite than beforehand. Now, I don't know how that works, but, but I need to tell you this isn't theory for me. This isn't even just theology, this teaching on generosity. This is testimony. I'm living this. Savon and I's life are living proof of the faithfulness of God in this area over and over and over again. In fact, we're three weeks into this series, and this is just coincidence. I'm happy to call it that. But let me tell you, because I don't want you to think about this as a mathematical formula, but let me tell you that we've had three different instances in the last three weeks since we've been in this series of God financially blessing us. And that's just been, again, just an incredible, breathtaking experience for us. We're just like, God, you are so faithful. You are so amazing. You've done it again. And just to ease anyone's mind who's thinking, oh, has he got some bonus through the church budget or something since he's talking about giving? No, not that at all. It's totally outside this church. But God has just been faithful to us. And I'll give you one example of that. Uh, in our neighbourhood where we rent, we're in a new estate, um, everybody around us is saying, we pay this much. And our rent, because we were one of the first homes in there, is down here. So everybody around us is like $100 more, sometimes even more than that. And our contract ends at the end of this year, so we've begun conversations with the real estate agent to say, hey, uh, we realise our contract's coming to an end. And in our minds, we thought if it goes up $50, we can probably stretch that much. But if it goes up $100, like that's really, really going to be a stretch for us. And the answer came back this week, the owner's looking at not changing it. We're like, how does that work? And everybody around us is saying, you know, their rent's way up here. And in the housing market, in, in the current environment here, like that's just another miraculous provision that we see 
from God. I don't say any of that to say, look at me. I mean, haven't I got all this worked out? I have plenty of human struggles. I mention that to boast about God's goodness. Just say, how faithful is our provider? In week three, we talked about escaping consumerism. And we looked at Paul's secret for contentment last weekend. And basically the secret is this, start today. Don't think that contentment is some pipeline dream. When you get that new car, when you get that new home, when you get that new whatever, that then your life will be better. Now that's a cultural lie that you need more and we need to aggressively push back against that. This lie which is you've seen it, therefore you need it, right? This is kind of how the culture operates. I saw the smart jacket that I can adjust and, and, and keep my temperature at the perfect comfort level. No, no, no. Just because I saw it doesn't mean I need it. And last week's message was about escaping consumerism. And today in part we're continuing on in that conversation. The title today is Relax, You've Already Made It. Relax, You've Already Made It. You say, what do you mean, John? I've already made it. I mean what you think I mean. Financially, you've already made it. You've already made it. If you're living the average life in Australia, a common existence, not above average, a common existence by world standards, you need to know you've well and truly made it. You've well and truly made it. There's, we need to pay attention to this, that us Aussies, our average wage puts us in the top 2% of wage earners in the world. We've already made it. We're already at the top of the tree. I mean, we are already blessed beyond all measure. Now is the time to embrace that as our status. You've already made it. You're already rich. Someone's saying, John, get off the grass. That's not true of me. There's so many things I can't afford yet. I mean, I'm still using an iPhone 5. It's a 5S, yeah, I'll give you that. But it's, aren't they up to 12 now? I'm still stuck back in five. Dwayne's waving over here. I'm in the five club, mate. The car I drive is as old as the hills. A stereo stopped working two years ago. And what do you mean I've already made it? And, and, and this push mower that I push around my one acre backyard, John, you need to know it takes me three hours if I had a ride on. It would be so much easier. I haven't already... Made it. There's so many things I don't possess yet. Well, rewind to last week's message. Escape consumerism. Just because you saw it doesn't mean you need it. We need deliverance from this mindset in the West. And here's our problem. We always seem to compare upwards. We find someone better off than us, or so it seems, and we, we compare our lifestyle to theirs. And we go, well, I haven't made it because I found someone doing better off than me. I mean, yeah, I've got a little tinny that I can take out on the water, but it doesn't compare with my neighbour's Boston Whaler. I mean, I haven't made it. He surely has. What have we done? We compared upwards. I have a double-storey house, that's true, but my brother's mansion, by comparison, I'm living in a, in a doghouse compared to what he's got going on. What have we done? We've again compared 
upwards. Sure, I got a new car two years ago, a little Suzuki buzz box, but compared to Mike at work when he pulls in his, his Aston Martin, I feel a little bit inadequate. What do we do? We compare upwards. We always compare up. We get swept in this horrendous game that yours is better than mine and we lose gratitude for what God's put in our hand because we're so busy looking at what's going on around us. Here's the critical piece. We compare up, not down. And in saying you should compare down, I don't mean you look down your nose and go, whoa, you're worse off than me. I'm talking about a mindset here. I wonder if instead of comparing your car to Mike's Aston Martin, you would think about when you're driving to work this week, wow, I'm so much better off than that person who's walking 20 kilometres today to get to work. How blessed am I? I wonder if you'd think about the person in the third world country living in a mud house and you might start thinking of your place being a castle. I wonder if instead of thinking about your 3.7 metre tinny being inadequate, you might start thinking about all the people that would just love to own a boat, full stop. Like, why do we keep comparing up? Can't you see? It's a lie, friends, and we enter the rat race, but even winning that race still makes us a <laughs> rat. I'm John, and I tell you these things because I'm your friend. Check this out on screen. Here's some things that we need to be grateful for. You're blessed if you can read because 20% of the world's population can't. If you've never experienced the danger of battle, check the news, see what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment as the Taliban begin to take over that country. Still on point two, if you've never experienced the danger of battle, the agony of torture, the pangs of starvation, you are blessed. As 500 million people in the world are experiencing this right now. If you can attend any meeting you want, political, religious, social, you are more blessed than 3 billion people in the world. If you have food in the refrigerator, clothes in your back and a roof over your head, you are richer than 75% of the world. Matter of perspective, isn't it? If you have money in the bank or spare change somewhere, you're among the world's most wealthy. Are you getting it yet? You've already made it. You've already made it. You're already blessed beyond all measure. This is an established fact. Enough of the facts and figures. Let's jump in and see what God has to say on this. 1 Timothy 6 is where I'm going this weekend. And as you're beginning to see in this series, God actually has plenty to say about the way we use our money and our resources for him. I'm reading to you from the book of Timothy. Timothy is a young leader being uh, given counsel here by an older leader, Paul, at the end of his life. And uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes this to Timothy, and it flows to us today. 1 Timothy 6 verse 6 says, Godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. You know, that's enough of a message for many of you. Just park there. If you fall asleep, it's okay from here. Grab hold of that. What a statement. Godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. 
But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is a good correction actually from earlier translations which would just say money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the problem. Money is not our problem. It's what we do with our money, how we think about our money, when it becomes the driving force of our life. That's a problem. Look what happens next. Some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God. So run from these evil things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God who gives life to all and before Christ Jesus who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate that you obey this command without wavering that no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus comes again. I read that verse and I go, wow, what a vision. Verse 15, at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He alone can never die and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him nor ever will. All honour and power to him forever. Now we approach verse 17 and I hope you spot who's being referenced here. It's us. We are the rich. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money. It's so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always be ready to share with others. By doing this, they'll be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. One of my favourite pastimes, at least in my Victorian days before moving up here, was to hunt the incredible Murray Cod. It's the prize fish back where I came from in Victoria on the Murray River. Everybody's chasing one of these and some people work uh, weeks, months, years to track one down. This is my brother-in-law Scott. I took him out for one day and he managed to land this fish which is wonderful and the envy of many locals. So this fish here is probably 65 centimetres, not my biggest but you know fish always grow the further you get from the story of course. So this is a decent size Murray Cod and you can sort of tell in this photo the size of its mouth. They've got incredibly big mouths. In fact, um, one of my favourite sights to see is these things can, because there's lots of ducks in Victoria, sorry animal lovers, but the, these things can just come along and swallow a duck off the surface of the water. That's how big their mouths are. They're incredibly big and aggressive fish. Territorial, they kind of own their area, they live long lives. And so one of this size is probably quite an older fish. Once they get above 75 centimetres, they're protected. You can't take them. But they well and truly get above 75 centimetres. Like there's fish there 1.5 metres or longer. These are big, big 
fish. When they bite, they bite hard. You know you've got a fish on board. Uh, it's not like the fish up here where they tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. I'm like, what? Is this for real or what? There's been many times I'm like, oh, that's nothing. And then 10 minutes later, I pull a rod in. And, oh, sure enough, there was one there. Didn't even know. Like, let me know you're, you're knocking on the door if you're really there. But anyway, these things, when they bite, they bite. I often put a bell on my rod and start reading or doing something else. And if you're not watching or not being careful, they'll take your rod. I've been many times out in the water rescuing a rod because they just go bang and they're taking it back to their log. And if they beat you to their log, you're going to snap your line because they're big and strong. You have to sort of get them before they've got home. So, yeah, they're an exciting catch and very much a prize fish in my area where I came from. Now the theory is, and um, locals know this, hopefully there's no Victorians watching online today. If you are, tune out this next part because I'm telling you Queensland is a secret because you don't, doesn't apply to you, they're, they're not up here. But, but locals know the secret back there, the fishermen, these fish bite on tasty cheese. So you, you, you just from, from your fridge at home, you just get a block of cheese out of the fridge and you cut it in decent big dice, like a you know, dicer, like a 20 cent piece, big because these things have got big mouth, big hooks, big piece of cheese. And this is how you catch these fish, which is quite incredible. And it's a brilliant experience for a germaphobe. I don't have to handle smelly bait that's dripping all sorts of yuckies over me. I just have to put a bit of cheese on and that's all I need to take out fishing for the day. And the other good thing about them is they're basically the only fish interested in cheese. And uh, so, so you, if you're going to catch anything, you're going to catch one of these. So the theory is what's happening under that brown water, of course you can't see, in the Murray River, you can see from the picture behind how, how the, how, what the colour of the water is. You can't really see what's going on, but the theory is that that cheese attracts shrimp. And the smell of that cheese, you know, and 10 or so shrimp will gather around that cheese. And then, of course, what happens is the cod comes along to swallow all of those shrimp and it gets hooked. It gets hooked. Now, I can't understand the psychological depths that the Murray cods brain. I, I really don't know what's going on under there. That's just a theory. Here's what I feel pretty clear about. They're not biting on that cheese to get a hook. They're not biting down to get themselves pierced through. They don't understand that bite is going to cost me. And this is the message of 1 Timothy 6. The danger of money is camouflaged, but understand if you make your whole life about that, if you get allured like a moth to a flame, like a fish to bait, you'll find yourselves drawn into the love of money. But know this, there's a rusty hook underneath all that it promises and it will pierce you through. There's a real danger here for us when it comes to being pierced through. If we make our lives about money, Jesus said it, and I've been repeating it over recent weeks, we cannot serve God and money. We cannot serve God and money, Jesus said. That one will win and one will lose. One will get our devotion and one will sink into a distant second place. So if I'm going to make my life all about money, guess what? God's not going to be on the throne. 
My finances are not supposed to dictate the direction of my life. Now, someone will say at this point, Jono, if what you're saying is me becoming a millionaire means I've got to deal with a hook, well, sign me up. I'll swallow hook, line and sinker. I can't see any downside. I hear your analogy, but pursuing money and getting it doesn't sound like anything other than heaven to me. I can't see the catch. Sounds like a dream come true. What could go wrong? Well, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, says plenty, plenty, plenty could go wrong. Verse 9 of our reading said, People who long, keyword, long to be rich, fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. This isn't an English lesson. I'm not qualified to give one. I'm a simple country boy, folks. But I do want you to notice the verb in that, in that, that, that verse in 1 Timothy 6, 9. Notice the verbs we read, fall, trapped, plunged. These are the verbs in, in verse 9. They fall, they get trapped, and they plunge. Now, you don't have to be Einstein to work out. They're all negative descriptions, yeah? But I want you to see beyond that, it's not just that they're bad experiences. There's something else about these verbs. They're all passive verbs, meaning they don't require deliberate action on our behalf. They kind of happen to us. They're experiences beyond our control. When you fall or get trapped or get plunged, you're not choosing that. You're kind of slipped into it. It's outside our decision-making or management. Let me say it as plain as I possibly can. Once I choose money, it takes a life of its own. And it takes over my life. And I won't have to make choices from there out. It will decide for me. The love of money is enough to set off this dynamic trail in my life. A domino effect. It's a force to be reckoned with. It's kind of like one of those rides... At wet and wild. You know the theme park down on the Gold Coast, those, those water parks where you, you, you get on the slide. And uh, I remember the, the church that I left in Victoria gave our family an annual pass. So we visited those parks frequently when we first arrived. And um, Bella, my probably six-year-old at the time, um, I went down first and so that I'd be waiting at the bottom when she followed. And I, I got through this ride and I'm like whoa now I wonder how brace is feeling after just experiencing that because you get thrown around twirled and twisted and spat out at the bottom but here's the thing you just had one decision actually hop on and the ride the gravity of that ride will do the rest for you and this is what 1 Timothy 6 here is saying to us you just take one step and you get on that slippery ride and it's over it's over. You don't get a second decision in any point in that ride. I mean, you don't get at the wet and wild rides halfway down that water slide. They don't check in and say, everything okay in there? Have you had enough? Do you want to hop off? You just go like 100 mile an hour and spat out at the bottom. It's a slippery slide. You get one choice, hop on, and then the ride takes over. And here this is what the Holy Spirit is communicating to us through Paul. Be super careful where devotion goes to, church. Because once you set the wheels in motion of this thing we call a money lover, it just takes over. It's like wildfire. It becomes 
about just building more and more and more. And that original choice will end up smashing you. It will own you. You're, you won't own your stuff. Your stuff will own you. That's how this rolls. Money has this inbuilt motor within it that self-propels and spits you out. And you don't have a nice little landing at the bottom of a slide where there's this little lovely pool that catches you. It spits you out and it will make a mess of you. You'll be in a million pieces when you finally get off that ride. It has a life of its own. It's spelled out so clearly for us in verse 9. You just fall in and then you get trapped and then you get plunged into ruin and you get spat out at the other end. And some of us, I think, are scratching our heads going, I, I don't remember making this choice. We're at the bottom of our li the, the, the line, our life's in ruins. We go, I don't remember choosing to come here. You didn't. You just chose to hop on the ride called Love, Money Lover, and, and it did the rest. It, it spirals out of control and you wind up at the bottom wondering what on earth happens. You crash. On my day off this week, I listened to a wonderful interview from... Laurie Lawrence, an Olympic swimming coach for many years, a Queenslander, and uh, he's got an incredible record. He, he uh, coached 23 people to world records in his time, 33 Olympic medals across, I think, four Olympic uh, games that he was swimming coach, and 10 gold medalists were amongst his protégés. So just an incredible record, and someone who had capacity to take someone on a journey and bring the best out of them. One thing really jumped out at me in this interview with Laurie, though, this uh, week as I was listening to it, um, he would say, my, my, my big intention beyond making them the best athlete they could be was to prepare them for life after sport. And, and he said, I, I had a real focus on that because I recognised that that this Olympic gold medal, even if they could achieve that, and of course that's elusive, very few do, but even if they did, that was temporary. That was only a temporary thing. And what about when the phone stops ringing? Because eventually it will. He prepared them for the fact the media is eventually going to find someone younger, someone sexier, someone better. And they're going to be infatuated with the new star pretty soon. And you need to be ready for that. And even if you win the gold medal today, tomorrow, at some point, you'll be a nobody. And this is what Laurie prepared them for. And he prepared them not just then for sport, but for life. And he said, don't put all your eggs in that one basket. Don't think that that, that, that podium at the Olympic Games can contain the weight of your full identity. Because it can't. It's short lived. Don't go after temporary gold and have no other plan with your life because that would be so short-sighted. This is a similar warning we're getting here in 1 Timothy 6. Be super careful people where your affections get on. Be careful how you think about your resources. Don't put all your eggs in one basket and make your life all about money because you'll go on a ride that will spit you out and leave you high and dry. The potential of wealth at the top end, at the beginning of that ride, there's flashing lights and it looks all amazing. But bear in mind, it has a life of its own and it will bring you to ruin and pierce you through with many sorrows. So I'm fascinated by the description in verse 10 about being pierced. Notice who's doing the piercing. You. You. 
You're piercing yourself just by choosing to get on that ride called money lover. You're going to pierce yourself through with many sorrows, it says. You don't need a business partner to do you wrong to end up in financial ruin. We have this capacity all by ourselves to self-destruct just by getting on this ride called money lover. And we get on there and we come out at the bottom not just with one hook in our mouth but looking like we've come out of a tackle box. We'll be pierced through from head to toe with sorrow, the scripture says. Reminds me of Tim Keller's wisdom I used a few weeks ago. Money itself isn't usually our idol. It just shows us where our idols are. Sometimes as though we're in love with the, the plastic. You know, we, we, we're kissing our wallets or our handbags because in it contains our money. It's, it's in the whisper. The charm of money is in, in what it promises us. And I love where the Holy Spirit directs the Apostle Paul to, to direct our conversation next because he, he moves away from the wallet and the handbag and he moves towards what's going on internally when we think about our money. Why, Jesus, can't we serve God and money? Here's why. Because money is demanding. Money wants your heart. That's what this is about. It's a hunt for our trust. It's why I keep reminding you that this series is not about church bills. This conversation is so far beyond that. It's a discipleship issue. We must reckon with this, whether you're Access Church or not, this is a Jesus issue. Am I going to let him win in this area and give control over to him? Because money is a dynamic threat to our faith. And here's why it calls for our hearts. It calls for our heart. He wants our trust. And this is the battle that's really going on when it comes to God and money. Is who's getting my trust? This is why this financial area is so hotly contested by us. Nothing quite says, I'm giving God control of my life, like giving him control in this financial area. And nothing quite says, I'm holding on to control in my life, like holding on to control in this area and clinging to my hard-earned cash because I'm full of anxiety when I think forward to the future. I mean, will I have enough? We'll get to this question more next week, but if you're into stockpiling and building your security there, I hope you've got a lot. I hope you've got a lot because in order to feel good about life, you better have a lot if that's where your security is. We have these fears, don't we? I'll end up a beggar in my old age if I give up too much now. But it just reveals where our security is coming from. It's the battle of trust. It's why Paul directs Timothy to say, hey, make sure you teach people that this is what it's really about. It's a trust issue. And this is what verse 17 says. Teach those who are rich. That's us, remember? That's us Australians. Teach them not to be proud or to trust. Did you see that word? To trust in their money. How is it possible to trust in money? Well, apparently it must be. It's here. It's in God's word. People put their trust in money when they cling tighter to that than they do Christ. They get their security from how much is in the bank. Teach them not to trust their money. And the justification is given at the end of verse 17. It's unreliable. It's just a temporary passing thing. Like Laurie Lawrence said, it, the Olympic podium cannot contain the fullness of someone's identity. You must plan for more 
There's more to life than a temporary gold medal. There's more to life than your next paycheck. There's more to life than a pay rise. There's more to life than how much is in your bank this month. Don't trust in money. Trust in God. And the justification is given why we should trust in God because he gives us all we need. We don't need to be striving after every cent. We don't need to be stingy. We can relax in the idea that we have this generous father who's richly providing for all of our needs. So Paul urges, stay clear, church, of the love of money. Now, I'm not sure anyone calculates this decision. They writes the date in their diary. I solemnly declare from this day forward, my life will be about the love of money. Can you imagine anyone doing that? I, I really can't. I don't think anyone really does that. I doubt anyone under the sound of my voice today purposefully makes that choice. But Paul's counsel for us still is we're all in danger of this, us rich people. And I think some of us have hopped on that ride that I referred to earlier. Unknowingly, we might have been like blindfolded essentially in a fog and it's like we didn't even know we got on a ride, but we feel our lives out of control in this whole area or maybe even crashed at the bottom. And I suspect some of us are feeling like that right now. So let's move this conversation forward and talk about the remedy for that. Take the mystery out of all of the analogies for a second and listen to Paul's straight shooting on the matter. How would I know I'm not trusting in uncertain riches? And how would I know that instead I'm putting my trust in God? I think that's very, very simple. Do a stock take. We're far enough into this year for you to be able to have a body of work to look at. And what do you see when you look at that? Sure, financially, what do you see? Is there any sign of extravagant giving in your year to date as you look back through your bank account? This is what it comes down to. Any sign of extravagant giving, any sign of generosity in the way we give? And what about our time? What about our energy? Can we, can we think of a time recently where we ourselves were put out and we gave up a Saturday or gave up a, some of our own time just to serve somebody else, to look out for them, to help them? This is where it's seen. Our trust is seen in our living, which leads me to, to bring you a word of encouragement and caution about the concept of 1 Timothy 6, 19, where it says, store up treasure in heaven. We'll get to that more next week. There's some encouragement there for us that every dollar invested in God's kingdom has some eternal ramifications. I can't begin to imagine what that means. I mean, it's exciting as far as I'm concerned to think that I'm somehow storing up treasure in heaven. What does that exactly mean? I don't have a clue. I just think it's very, very exciting to think about. There's eternal ramifications for every dollar invested in God's kingdom. But I, but I want you to think, uh, be, escape that idea that all of the reward is way, way up there somewhere and there's no implications now because there most definitely is. Right now, money can be piercing us through or right now, our approach to money can be bringing joy into our lives because some people by this point in the series are having this phrase, delayed gratification in their minds. They're like, I think what you're saying, Jono, is I go without now, I give a whole lot away, so that when I get to heaven, 
that I have a lot to look forward to and there's a lot of reward there in God. So I sacrifice now in order to enjoy life later. And this is the Christian worldview, right? I struggle in the present, I suffer, so that eventually one day when I get to heaven, I get rewarded by God and life will be there good. But I just kind of have 80 or 90 years of misery in the meantime. That's kind of what you're saying, right? I just get through the 80 or 90 years of misery and then... I get the rewards of heaven because I've lived faithfully in this space. I don't think so. There's a significant phrase in 1 Timothy 6.17 because it shows generosity and misery are not synonymous. Generosity is not supposed to equal drudgery. Just the opposite actually. I love the final three words of verse 17 where it says, God gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Isn't that a refreshing phrase at this point in the conversation, Paul? Because he's been talking about a life of sacrifice. He's been talking about a life of generosity. But he actually puts in here, God gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Amongst this heavy call about a life of sacrifice is this thing that we have a father wanting us to be flourishing. So this call into generosity is not a call into asceticism, which the old saints believe that showed their spirituality. I, the more I suffer, the more godly I am. So I'll walk across these hot coals and that'll prove that I'm serious about Jesus. That's how saints of old used to approach life. They used to aim to suffer to show their devotion to Christ. But I don't think that's what 1 Timothy 6 is teaching here. You're not allowed to enjoy anything nice. It's all about a life of sacrifice. No, no, no. It says here, amidst our generosity, amidst that lifestyle, God gives us everything for our enjoyment. Our dad wants us enjoying life. I think that's pretty cool. So up there for ice cream, I say. <laughs> P.S. There's a tub in the freezer and it's mine. The point is here, not about ice cream or us getting a different car or getting a different phone even. It's when we get preoccupied with those things and, and when we make a God out of them and when we say, I'm not going to be happy until I get that upgrade. I'm not going to be happy until I get out of this house into a better suburb. We're making a God out of it when we do those things. And they become more delightful to us in the very presence of God. And then... We are trapped and on the way to being plunged into ruin. Then we are up for being pierced with many sorrows because it got our hearts. Because it got our heart. That's where the battles won or lost. What's getting our hearts? What's getting our security? What's getting our trust? Paul has one final thing to say to us about the practical way of thinking in this new way of blessed beyond all measure and it's this recall your entry reflect on your exit that'll help that'll help if you're struggling to get into the mindset of sharing and being anxious about but if i adopt this generosity thing john what about my life in 10 years in 20 years in 30s will i have enough then this Recall your entry, reflect on your exit. We got this from the very first verses we read. We brought nothing with us when we came into this world. 
We can't take anything with us when we leave it. And so if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. That's an incredibly low bar for a life of satisfaction, isn't it? How do you know if you've made it? When I get into my first home away from my parents, when I can finally afford the rent all by myself, Paul would say, ah, oh, that's not it. All oh, right, well, when I save up enough for a mortgage and I get into my first property of my very own, that's when I've made it. No, that's not it either. Wow, okay, well, when I get the house paid off and get my investment property going then, Paul says, no, that's not it. You want to know how you've made it? You got close, enough clothes to wear today? Yep, I'm looking around, don't see anyone naked, thank you. Thank you for dressing before coming this morning. If you're online and you're all alone, do whatever you like there. <laughs> We're all closed. Have you had a banana for breakfast? Yep, tick. Okay, you've made it. You've made it. <laughs> Relax, you're already there. That's the place of contentment. If you have, what? Investment properties? No, no, it doesn't say that. If we have enough food and clothes, let us be content. Let us see ourselves as blessed beyond all measure. This is the low bar in terms of our culture, isn't it? For a life of contentment. But, but biblically, this is where it's at. This is where it's at. Paul says, if all that's foreign to you, you can't kind of relate to it, then here's what to do. Reflect on your entry. Remember your entry, rather. Recall your entry, reflect on your exit. What do you mean? What it sounds like, that's what I mean. You arrived naked. You didn't have clothes on at that point in time. No baby comes out fully clothed. Wow, three-piece suit, that's impressive, that's a good entry. No one comes out wearing a tie or with fancy shoes, no. No baby comes out clinging to the credit card. No baby comes out clinging to a $100 note. No, no baby comes out with the first strain of sight going, can I check the, the family bank balance to make sure that I'm in the right family? No baby does that. Babies arrive naked with nothing. And Paul says, remember that. It'll really help with your contentment. You'll be happy with food and clothes when you remember that. And remember... Or think upon, reflect upon your exit when you leave this world. Likewise, you, you won't be clinging tight to possessions at that point in time. I remember very early in ministry, before I'd ever done a funeral, I got called by a family at 5am on a Sunday morning. Now this family were unchurched. The older father who'd just passed was part of the church family, but, but none of his children were, who were all adults. So they didn't really know how this was supposed to roll from a religious point of view. And I must tell you, I didn't know how this was supposed to roll from a religious point of view either. So they call me at five o'clock in the morning and they say, Dad has passed away, which, which wasn't a surprise. He was you know, nearing the end. He was ill. He's an elderly man. But that Dad has passed and uh, he's just here on the floor and we're calling you to come and do whatever you need to do before we call the undertaker, you know, with the body or whatever. And I was like, hmm. So here I am driving over there thinking, what do I do? <laughs> what do I do? You know, I was like, you might have to turn away while I do this bit. 
<laughs> I don't know what to do. So I didn't try and steal that guy's wallet. But you know what? Even if I did, he wouldn't have cared. He wasn't there anymore. He was born again. He loved Jesus. He was on the other side. He left whatever he had behind. He wasn't there anymore. Recall your entry point. Reflect on your exit. It'll help. It'll help profoundly to think about contentment in the moment. Relax in the meantime. You've already made it. You've already made it. If you're living anywhere near an average Australian life, you've already made it. You're amongst the world's richest. How about we begin to see our lives as blessed beyond all measure? How about we grow in the perspective that we have a generous God providing everything for our enjoyment? How great is our God? How worthy is he of our trust? Let's bring it to him, church. Would you stand for prayer as the music team come? We're going to sing about the goodness of God, a great song that reminds us of his faithfulness in every season of life. Lord, we thank you that your goodness and your mercy is flowing to us in this day. And we bring you again our trust, our hearts. And we ask God for continual perspective changes as we not only move through this series, but continue to grow with you in our lives, to know that you are always going to be our provider. As you are faithful yesterday, you will be faithful tomorrow. And we can rely on you. We can know that, that as David said in the Psalms, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their children begging bread. And God, you will continue to carry us forward into the future. And so we look to that with confidence. I pray financial blessing over every person in this room today. I pray that as they honour you, as they adopt a, a mindset of generosity, as they say, this is my new normal, that you would bless them beyond all measure. But I pray beyond that, that that blessing would flow into every single area of their lives, that you would make all grace abound to them in Christ Jesus. And I thank you, God, that you are well and truly capable. So we bring you all our thanks and praise in Jesus' name.